All right, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should have found yourself at some point confused, baffled, frustrated, upset, kind of just grow sick and tired of it, that on one hand, we claim, in theory, that this right here that I'm holding on the, placing on the pulpit, a Bible, is supposed to be the final and what? Final, only authority, right? That's what we claim, yes? It's the final, only authority. And if, we all, if all Christians have one source of authority and one authority alone, what do you think should flow from that truth? Unity and agreement. Do you think that's a logical assertion, right? Do you think that's logical to say that if we have one source of authority, one source of authority, then we should all be in agreement, yes? Right? I mean, if we have one rule book for football, basketball, or anything else, there should be pretty much agreement that this is how the game should be played. That action is outside of what's allowed. That action is allowed, right? Whether And it, that's just the way it is. But we, what can we say? Even though we claim that this is the final authority and everything that we do, right, and what we believe and in our practice, what, what we do know is that we have 2,000 years of church history showing that there has not been what? Agreement or unity. Now, that raises a serious question, doesn't it? What's wrong? Why do you think that even though we say we have one source of authority, we have one truth, that there are thousands and thousands of, just we'll go with Protestant groups, who disagree on everything, and there's constantly fighting, arguing, and splitting, and one denomination, and a new church, and a new denomination, and a new this, and a new that. Why do you think there's been constant problems for basically 2,000 years of church history? Okay, someone says it's a problem of interpretation. Okay, Let, you, can, you can write that down as a possible, the problem of interpretation, all right? If there's a problem of interpretation, what would be the solution of fixing that? All right, we would have to then come upon, agreed upon methods on how to interpret it. Now, supposedly, there is agreed upon methods of interpretation. If you look to the Protestant world, what's the typically agreed upon hermeneutical method within most of the Protestant world? The historical grammatical is typically the agreed upon hermeneutic, right? And for most, not, I'm not saying all, but for most, right? Well, if the historical, so if we have an agreed upon hermeneutic, we have an agreed upon source, then what should there be? Agreement. But is there agreement? All right, so something's still wrong, right? Something is still wrong. So what's wrong? Either the source, the Bible, something's wrong with it, Okay, nobody wants to admit that. Okay, so okay, that, everybody's like, nope, that's not the problem. Okay, so then where's the problem? Okay, with us, the, what's the problem inside of us? 
Right? Someone says sin, okay. Now that would be at least theologically a good place to start, right? What would be another problem? Okay, a deceitful heart. Just think practical terms. Okay, pride. Those are, those are spiritual, theological explanations. Think in the most practical way. Forget theology, forget spiritual. All right, we've agreed, we said that if there's one source, there has to be an agreed upon hermeneutic. If we have an agreed upon hermeneutic and we have one source, then that should even verify even a greater amount of unity. But one source and a seem, seemingly mostly agreed upon hermeneutic for at least, mo, mo, I'm not saying all. In other words, it would be easy, if the hermeneutic was the problem, it would be easy to divide the camps, right? All right, here's the camp that uses this hermeneutic. Here's the camp that uses this hermeneutic. The two shall never meet. Right? It would be easy to divide it, right? Why do we not agree with that church? What would be the answer? A different hermeneutical system, right? But we clearly know that doesn't work. So that, that still doesn't fix the problem. So practically, what has to be the issue? I want you to think about it a lot. Practically, not spiritually or theologically. I do agree that we're sinful. I, I, all of that is accurate, and I think it does play a part in this conversation. But there's something far more practical at work here. Okay, that's kind of looking to the, the Bible being at fault. That would probably be problematic. Oh, think about it. Come on. We're not, we're not going to move until we get this right today. I'll sit here all day just drinking water watching you guys. Right. I'll see, if, see if someone online gets it before you guys. If someone online gets it before you guys, I'm just leaving this church and going to wherever they live. Okay. All right. I'm not doing hand motions. I'm not doing Pictionary. I'm just going to stand here, okay? Um, okay, someone's saying something else about something totally other related to that. So I can't, I can't answer their, pro, their question. All right, they're still dealing with other issue. All right. Okay, nobody has answered yet here. Okay, all right. All right, so nobody has answered online or here. So you're still in the running to not make me just leave this church. Okay, so here we go. Right? We have, well, okay, we all want to be right, okay? I, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing anything. I'm saying everything you're saying is good, but there's just one major issue you're missing, just from a logical pers- perspective, right? If we have one source of authority, we have a hermeneutical system that is agreed upon by most, yet we can't agree on anything, right? Well, then where's the issue? Now, everyone keeps pointing to us, and I, I do believe that us is the issue, but I think you're missing what happens. It's subtle, but it's very important. We've talked about it a lot. Okay. Well, I, I do agree that the fall, all of that, everybody's going from a very theological, forget theology for a minute, just think practical, as practical as possible. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're going the right direction, and then all of a sudden, you know, because someone said, well, wait a minute, what, we have to have a right hermeneutic. That's good. So you're, you're going the right direction, but all of a sudden you're starting going back over here. You keep going that direction. No. I'm just going to have to tell everyone. 
Okay? That's good. Oh, now you're going the right direction. You're going the right direction. Okay? Well, what would that, what would be another way of saying that? You're going the right direction. Bojana's getting very, very close. She's like right there. She's about to just literally just win a million dollars. Now, don't blame society. Oh, she's go. She's right there. All she's got to use just use the right words. Hey, I'll, I'll just help you. We said this was the authority. What did she just describe? Ah, we become the authority. And once we become the authority, what's going to happen? Is there going to be unity? No, there'll only be unity with those who agree with what? Remember, this is the whole issue in church history. Remember, we've gone through this a billion times in this church, right? Okay, so we have God's word, right? There's no way to deny this, that early on, there was an authoritative body that people had to look to, right? There's no way to get around this because we did not have a completed canon, yes? So who did they listen to? Who did they look to? Early church, early, 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 early church. No, early, early, early church. Okay, I, I hope, unless you're thinking Peter was the first pope, the apostles, okay, all right. We had an apostolic, and Paul sometimes would reference his apostolic authority, right? Listen to me, right? I'm an apostle, right? Apostolic authority. So based on what the apostles were saying, that's what people had to go by, right? Unless you were an apostle, you could not question that authority. Agreed? Okay? Then we go from apostolic authority, and remember we get into a whole issue uh, historically from apostolic authority. Some refer to it as apostolic succession, that the apostolic authority was passed on. And it was passed on to whom? The church, right? And who was given that? We create a, you can either use the singular of an individual, pope, or a magisterium, magisterial authority. Where do we see the church exercising a pope or magisterial authority in the early church? We see it at least in seven of them. Seven ecumenical councils. What happens in those seven ecumenical councils? You really could argue we see it in eight. Right? What was the first council? Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, right? The church made a declaration and it was viewed to be binding on whom? All the other churches, right? That's where, when, when we look at those seven ecumenical councils, that's always baffles me. People are like, well, where did that come from? From Acts, Okay. So guess what? Those seven, the, the seven ecumenical councils, if we call the, the one in Jerusalem an ecumenical council, then we have eight, right? We have, but we know the seven, right? And what did those councils do? This is right. This is wrong. If you don't follow us, 
anathema. Remember that in many cases, they, the, uh, after those councils and the documents, they, they give anathema statements, right? You are anathema, you are anathema, you are anathema, you are anathema, you are anathema. You're damned, you're cursed, you're, you're outside of biblical Christianity, right? And so the church seemed to have some kind of authority. At some point, what changed? Well, we, we're going to skip a little bit, but let's just go to the 1500s, right? I know some say it's a legend. Some say it did not happen this way. But a Catholic monk took a hammer, a nail, 95 theses, nailed them to the door, right? Now, some say that didn't happen that way. There's some dispute about that. But either way, he, produ- he published those and, that, and by doing that, what did he, and forget what the 95 Theses say, just by writing them, publishing them, what was he saying? Forget the actual verbiage of the thesis. What was he saying? Their authority was wrong. And the minute he said their authority was wrong, what was, he, what was Luther hoping to happen? Well, what he was hoping, and I will give him credit for, I'm going to say that his motives were right. He wanted to to no longer the church to be the authority, scripture to be the authority. And that sounds good, right? But what happened? Within like 15 seconds. Then someone said, who was wrong? Luther was wrong. And then someone said, that they were wrong. And then someone said the Anabaptists were wrong. And then so Luther was like, drown the Anabaptists. Kill the Jews. Right? I mean, like Luther was just like, you know, get rid of everyone. He's like, get rid of him. Get rid of him. Get rid of him. Get rid of him. And then they would take over an area. And then guess what they would establish? That our doctrine is the right doctrine. And if you come into this city, you better abide by our doctrine. Because if you don't, what will happen to you? We'll kill you. And then, boom, chaos ensued, right? Did anyone ever, we've never looked back. Now, what does every group claim? That they're right, and that they're right based off the authority of Scripture. But we all can't be right on the basis of the authority of Scripture if we can't agree on anything. So then we're stuck doing what? We either have to then go back and establish that the church has the authority, right? Well, we clearly, the only, I get, the only, our only options would either we go, I don't become Greek Orthodox, go back to the Roman Catholic Church, or try to claim that our church has the authority. Now, everyone want, nobody wants to claim the church has the authority, right? Why does no one want to claim the church has the authority? Well, first, if you claim the church has the authority, either you've got to go find the right church that has the authority, but the minute you say the church has the authority, what would you have to do? Submit to it. Right? I, I, I've watched this weird thing. Like, like, sometimes we're like, no, there needs to be an authority. The church needs to have authority, but it's the biggest joke in the history of mankind. Like, do I have any authority? Let's just be as blunt as possible. Come on, let's all, I want everyone to say it. I have none. Zero. Zil. It's a joke. And when, whenever I say this, Christians get mad. I'm like, give me a break. A pastor has no authority 
whatsoever. I don't care if you have elder rule. I don't care if you have congregational rule. I don't care if you have pastoral rule. I don't have any authority. And why does a pastor have no authority? Because as soon as you disagree, what? You leave. Either, right, say it. Either they're going to get rid of me or I'm going to stand my ground and get rid of them. And people don't like, when I say that, people get mad at me. But I'm like, I, I, first of all, they get mad at me. <laughs> and then leave, okay? <laughs> so, which then proves my point, okay? It's like, well, don't we need authority? It's like, don't we need elders? Don't we need this? I said, we don't need anything because you're going to leave whenever you want to anyway. So just go ahead and leave. It's just, it's all a game. It's like pretend. We just play dress up, Right? It's like, we're going to pretend. We're going to pretend. You're the boss for five seconds until you disagree with me. I'm like, well, what if I have six elders in a church of four? Okay? I don't know how that would work, but okay. Right? Because, you know, we got to have elders. Well, what do you do as soon as you disagree with the elders? Well, either I come up, right? Like, okay, Mr. Goodlett. Okay. Okay. I, I got to have an elder on my side. Okay. We got Stephen and... And Robert over there, we, we got to work. And so then you start the po- politics where the elders do what? Have y'all, y'all probably seen this? Oh, the elders take side. How does that always work? Church splits. Oh, it, it didn't elders fix it? You, I've seen everything from pastoral rule to congregational rule to elder rule. And guess what I've seen in all of them? Churches split. And people... Leave. And the people who leave always think they're right. I have zero authority. Zero authority. So, so clearly, either we, nobody wants to accept authority because to accept authority would mean I got to submit. So it's, all, it's this weird world that we live in where nobody seems to have any clue. We can't agree on anything, and we pretend that there is authority. So sometimes this is what happens. When we find ourselves with a major issue, and I'm just going to now go ahead and mention the issue. And you can write it on your paper. Write down the word baptism. Write down the word baptism. Right? Now, Let's go through this. All right, everybody ready? Let's go with all the different views on baptism. All right? We have one major split. Well, we'll just do this, okay? Well, I'm just going to go through different concepts of baptism, right? So put baptism at the top of the paper, and then put number one, put immersion. All right? Now, immersion is the belief that a person is to be what? immersed completely into the water for the baptism to be valid. Right? That's the mode of baptism. Now, within those who agree that immersion is the proper mode, that a person is to be submerged into water, immersed completely into water, is there agreement among those who believe in immersion? No. What are the different views found in churches that believe in immersion? Well, view number one, immersion is simply symbolic of a spiritual action that already occurred. In other words, it's just symbolizing it. 
Why are you immersed? Because what does it symbolize? Your unity in Christ and you're, you're united with his death, burial, and resurrection. Does it do any of that? No, it simply symbolizes it. Right? That's view number one in the immersion camp. View number two in the immersion camp is that the immersion actually is connected, involved, and produces salvation. That's called baptismal regeneration. Like without it, you're not saved. We see that. We're, we're, we're here in West Texas. There's a, one of these kinds of churches on every street corner. Church of Christ. Church of Christ. Okay. Church of Christ. Cannibalites and all, all the, their history. Okay. We won't go through all of that. Campbellites. Okay. Um, I call them cannibals. Okay. Not that, that's around. Campbellites. Okay. All right. So everybody get that? Right. Now, there, that's a massive division, right? One is symbolic. One, it, it, it's necessary. It, it, it somehow is involved in salvation. Both would claim what is their authority? Right. There's even more disagreement. In the immersion camp, some believe we are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're not baptized in the Trinitarian formula, your baptism is not valid. Others believe you're to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And if you're not baptized in the name of Jesus, your baptism is not valid. Even in the, within immersion, there is disagreement. I guess everyone would claim, what is the authority? Scripture. And everyone would say that they are right. Isn't that insane? But does this problems with baptism stop there? No, 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 no. We go from baptism by immersion to baptism by sprinkling, meaning that you sprinkle water on the forehead or you can pour water on the forehead and this is sufficient. And this is a legitimate means of baptism. Now within the sprinkling camp, what do we have? Oh, we have, dis- do we have agreement? No, we have disagreement. Imagine that, okay? Some believe that you sprinkle, a, a ch- we'll say a child. We'll say, sp- well, we'll just leave it there. We'll just put sprinkling. We'll just put sprinkling, okay? All right? Uh, there, there's going to be disagreements here, but we'll just, mo- we'll just leave sprinkling as there. Sprinkling is obviously a massive disagreement from the immersion. Within the immersion camp, difference. Sprinkling, there's, we'll, we'll go ahead and I'll put, I guess we'll put them here. I was going to create a third category, but that's okay. Within sprinkling, there's disagreements, right? Some say you sprinkle a baby at eight days old, and what does it do? Okay, w- washes away their sins, and they are regenerated. They are saved at eight days of age, right? Right? That may baptismal regeneration. Now, you said, but there's baptismal regeneration over in the immersion side. Oh, it's a different baptismal regeneration, right? Because over in the immersion side, they typically say that that's for an adult or someone who can make a decision to believe where the sprinkling is just eight days old. They don't need to do anything. So there's even disagreement amongst those who believe in baptismal regeneration. But others believe sprinkling does what? For the baby. Just puts the sign of the covenant on the child, and the child becomes a member of the covenant body, the church. But they're not 
saved. They're not saved. All right? So, so we even have more disagreement, do we not? Okay, yeah, well, I mean, we're, we've got all kinds of stuff going on here, right? So we got infant baptism that either saves or infant baptism that, that just places a sign of the covenant on them. So we gotta, we've got to think of it. We've got a difference of opinion in the mode of baptism. We have the difference of opinion in the effects of baptism. And we have a difference in who should be baptized. A baby or someone who believes. Right? Infant baptism versus believer's baptism. So you can have a third category over here. We could say, so we have, we have immersion, we have sprinkling, and then we have, we'll just say, uh, we'll, we'll call them, we'll just put them the two t- together. Believer's baptism or, and we'll call it infant baptism, unbeliever's baptism, right? I mean, because they're not believers, they're eight days old. That's a massive difference of opinion. We could probably break it down even more than that. But what are you seeing? Differences. What does everyone claim to be their authority? Other than Catholics or Greek Orthodox, which would point to something other than something more. And they don't even need scripture alone. Why? The church can make the decision, right? The, the church can fix it, right? The church can fix it. But everyone else looks to what as the authority? The scripture. Now, sometimes when we have these debates and everyone's fighting, because that's lots of disagreement, is it not? That's just bapt. Can you imagine? That's just baptism, and there's that much disagreement. How can there be that much disagreement over just baptism? I, does that just make you want to just give up? It makes me just want to like, I, I forget it. What's the point? What's the point? It's maddening. But sometimes in the middle of that debating about it, what do we, even those of us who are not Catholic or Greek Orthodox, what does sometimes we have a tendency to point to? We can't point to the authority of the church per se, right? Because we've rejected it. If we accepted the authority of the church, we would probably be Catholic. So clearly we've kind of rejected it. But even though we've rejected it, what do many point to when the fight gets heavy? The early church, now this is always blows my mind, right? But it's true, right? You'll hear, and typically this is very popular in the Reformed world, but we'll point to the early church. And we'll say something like what? what, what, what well, give me some statements that are often said when we point to the early church. What kind of statements are said? The early church did it this way. The early church believed this. The early church believed that. Okay, now, the only problem with that is for everything you believe, I can probably go find a church father who does, does what? Disagree with what you said. So then you pick and choose which church father you want. But what's the real issue by pointing to the church fathers? What's the real issue? What's the real problem with doing that? We've already rejected the authority. Right? So we reject the authority until we want the authority. Right? So when we want the authority, or when we believe the authority agrees with us, we pull it out, because then I can say, come on, 
I got the church fathers on my side. So I'm obviously right. Or we'll say, well, the early, the early church believed what I believed. Now, another reason that's, what's a problem? Another reason that that's problematic is it's also said in a very, and I'm just going to be honest with you, a very manipulative way, right? Because if me and Mr. Goodlett are having a, 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 a disagreement, and I say the early church, that's manipulative because if, I, if he hasn't read the early church, then either he has to take my word for it, but I can guarantee you when those debates happen, what is the, almost without fail, what are people unwilling to do? To go actually spend the time researching it. And when you go research it, what, what should you look for? What do you think? If we decide to go fight about the early church fathers, what do you think we should do? What do you, what do you think the first step we should do? Say, me and Mr. Goodlett having a major disagreement. And we're like, we're going to go to the church fathers. I'm going to prove him wrong. Before I try to prove him wrong, what should me and Mr. Goodlett make a list of? Now, oh, something very practical. Nobody ever thinks of it. <clears throat> Before we do anything else, whatever subject we're debating, let's say we're debating baptism. Technically, this is what we should do. Let's stop debating baptism since we're going to argue the church fathers. Now, let's get the church fathers, right? What, 33 volumes of the, I think, the church fathers. I think, there's, I think the set is 33 volumes. Let's say we go through 33 volumes. We should go through and make a list of every way the church fathers disagree with us. Now, forget baptism. Now, why would we do that? Well, the, the point is, is if we, if, I, if we have a list of, say, 30 things that they disagree with us on, then what does that prove about us? They're not the authority. You can't point to them going, hey, because like the day that I got ambushed by those people who called me in for a conversation about baptism, and then it, it tur- I thought it was one person, ended up being seven people, and it was ridiculous. Basically, they're like, the early church fathers, the early church fathers, the early church fathers, the early church fathers. And I, and I couldn't get a word in otherwise. But I wanted to say, well, so the early church fathers is the authority. And guess what they said? As long as they agree with scripture. <laughs> Do you see how stupid that is? Well, because what are they actually saying? As long as they agree with my interpretation of Scripture. So, I, so when I called them out, they're like, how dare you say that about us? What do you mean? I'm like, what are you talking about? Clearly we all do that, right? Well, a Baptist will accept the church fathers and anything that agrees with our interpretation. A Catholic will agree with the church fathers. With that, it's just, it's, it's such a game. It drives me crazy. But when, when you're, when you're going to quote the church fathers, go make a list of everything that they say that you disagree with, that they disagree with you. Because then immediately it stops the argument, doesn't it? You're like, well, why are we going to refer to the church fathers? We disagree with them on 47 things. 
If I disagree with them on 47 things, what difference does it make if I disagree with them on 48 things, let's say about infant baptism? What would be the logical answer? It doesn't matter. Now, that, that's gonna, I'm going to get so many emails from people on this, but, I, but it's just a waste of time. Like, I've realized how, like, there was a time in my life, the early church fathers, the early church fathers, early, but then I just realized it's such a game. I say the early church fathers because if they agree with me on a subject. So ultimately, what does it come down to? It starts with an A. We're back to authority. In many cases, we use the church fathers to establish which authority? Our own. We're establishing our authority to say this is what we should believe about this subject because I found some church fathers who agree with whom? Me. But everywhere the church fathers disagree with me, guess what I do with their authority? Boom! So I don't really care about the authority of the church fathers. I care about the authority of what I say. I just use them when they agree with me. Right? Right? That's why you get married, right? To have someone to agree with you. Right? You get married for that person to tell you, you're always right. You're the smartest. You're the brightest. You're the best. Right? And they do that for the first... Three months? Three days? Okay. Mary made it three days. Okay, right? And then sooner or later, you're like, wait a minute. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the best. I'm not the greatest. I thought, remember all those, remember all those, okay, back in the old days, letters, okay, new days. Remember all those texts that you sent me? Okay. What just happened? Well, that's how it kind of works. We get the the church fathers is kind of like our, you know, our girlfriend who's supposed to tell us everything we want to hear. And as soon as we don't like them anymore, we break up. That's the game the church plays. And I'm sick of the game. It's just a waste of time. So if we claim that this is the authority... then somehow we have to figure it out based off this, but clearly that's a problem. Now, I think the problem is, is that this really isn't the authority. What's really the authority? We're the authority. I know you're like, well, where are we going with this? Well, I'm I'm, I'm trying to just demonstrate how foolish this game is, but I did want to do this. I decided... That since everybody wants to say the early church, the early church, when it comes to baptism, the early church, the early church, the early church, that we would start a series where we look to the early church, but we're going to look to three sources. Right? Source number one is the Didache or the Didache, depending on which book tells you how to pronounce it. Okay? The Didache or the Didache. The Didache or the Didache was written, some debate, but some place it is early as 70 AD, which would make it one of the earliest Christian writings in history. Some believed it belonged in the canon of Scripture. So the Didache, or the Didache, would, what, now, if that early on, what would be interesting about the Didache or the Didache? What does it say about baptism? Wow. And I, do you think the Didache or the Didache agrees or, 
or contradicts, or at least seems ignorant of how the church understood, say, baptism, say, starting from Augustine forward. If there's a disagreement, then the question should be what? Now, if there's a disagreement, then you know, you see the game you play? You either go with maybe Augustine or you go with the Didache. I, if you listen to my teaching on, uh, that I did, by five hours I did on the Romans 7 controversy, where I reviewed a podcast where they claim that Paul in Romans 7, when it describes the person who, the things I want to do, I don't do, and things I don't want to do, that that's describing a lost person. Guess who they look to for their argument? Origin, Jerome, Erasmus. What? And guess who they dismissed? Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. Well, what, who cares what Origen says? If you're going to dismiss Augustine, why should I listen to Origen? Why don't you listen to Augustine? And Origen, a heretic, okay, basically. I mean, come on, Origen has some messed up teaching, right? So, and then Jerome, and then Erasmus, you know, the one who argued with Luther about the bondage of the will? who Luther referred to as an enemy of God and an enemy of the church. Okay? But, but see, do you see how that works? Hey, Luther, Calvin, and Augustine, wrong. Origen, Jerome, and Erasmus, right. You see the game? Who cares then what either of them say? Because you're just choosing what you want to... That's, it's just a waste of time. Either they have authority or they have no authority. And to say they have authority when they agree with Scripture means they have authority when they agree with your interpretation of Scripture. So then who's really the authority? You are. Because I guarantee you that church father who you just said they got it wrong would look at you and say, what are you talking about? In fact, at that time, they may have just <laughs> exiled you, have you killed, right? Depending on the time or place. So we're going to look at the Didache. The Didache. That gets us from around 70 AD. In other words, in some cases, before Scripture, before we really have a New Testament. That's early on. That's pretty important. The next one is Tertullian on baptism. That gets us around 200, 215, 220. And then the third is Hippolytus, apostolic tradition. Again, around 200s. So that's going to get us from around 70, right? And we'll sp I'll spell these in, in detail and get you all the information later. Just know that, you know, you can just say, Didache, uh, on baptism, apostolic tradition, if you want to just do it that way. You don't need to know the authors, okay? But that gets us from around 70 AD to around 220, 225, 230. Now, what is the reason I want to look at these three? Well, they all address baptism. They are early. And I just want to see what they have to say. Because I'm constantly told that the early church was in complete agreement about infant baptism. And if you disagree with the early church, you're stupid and you're ignorant and you probably didn't go to Bible college. That's the way they treated me that, on that, that Saturday that I had that discussion, which was kind of mind-blowing that anyone would ever say that I'm stupid or ignorant since they don't know me. And they don't know how many degrees I have on the subject, but that's okay. I'm just stupid. Because you know why I'm stupid? Because I didn't agree with them. 
Imagine that, right? A bunch of arrogant jerks is what they turned out to be. And then they, then they told me I was in sin because I don't agree with them on baptism. whole thing was just a horrible train wreck of it. I, I don't even know how I ended up in that discussion, but it just, one person I thought wanted to have a discussion and then they, I'm ambushed with seven people who won't even listen to me. It was, oh, I, I was so upset by that. So, but I'm like, okay. I, look, I'm not going to worry about talking about them. They didn't want to have a conversation. But you know, I, if, you, if you don't know this about me, if you have a disagreement with me, if you have an argument with me, I may be dismissive or I may say I disagree with you, but you can always count that I will walk away and do what? Reconsider my entire position and think it through again. No matter how much I may disagree with you, I will be somewhere going through the entire subject again to see if there's any way I made a mistake. Because I've studied baptism a bazillion times. But I'm going to go through it again. Even though that conversation didn't go anywhere, they walked away just saying, he's an idiot. But I'm going to go, okay, maybe I'm an idiot. Let's look at it again. So you tell me that the early church was unanimous. Everyone agreed. Okay, well then, let's go to three early sources. The Didache, on baptism, and apostolic tradition. That gets me from around 70 AD to about 225. What do you think we're going to see? Well, we're going to find out. We'll fit, we're going to do the Didache right now, even though I know it's already 12 o'clock. That's okay. And the reason we're going to be able to do the Didache really fast is you know Why? It doesn't have a lot to say. <laughs> that, that's why. So I had to go with a longer introduction. Okay, here we go. All right. Um, just so that you know, the Didache, or the Didache, it's spelled D-I-D-A-C-H-E, if you don't know. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. For those who've been in this church, we've studied the Didache in the past, right, Sarah? Right? You've got all your notes? Okay. All right. I'm just going to... Well, you don't need your notes because you remember everything, right? Oh, you have your notes. Okay, I thought you said no. Okay. All right, good. You got your notes. Okay. We're not going to go through the whole... The Didache is easy to read. It's short. Everyone should read it. A lot of it is basically what? Sermon on the Mount, basically, is what it is. But okay. The Didache. Does anybody know where it was discovered? It was discovered inside a monastery. Okay, it was discovered inside a monastery in modern Turkey. Okay, in 1873. 1873. It was published in 1883. So, from, so that means from around 7100 AD, basically at some point it disappears. We don't know, three, maybe, because Athanasius liked the Didache. He thought all new converts should read the Didache. So you're all the way up into around 300s. So it was around for a while, and then it just kind of disappeared. Just, nobody really knew, nobody really mentioned it, and then it showed, they find it in a monastery. Right? In 1883, published, or 1873, published in 1883. Now when they found it, this is basically, according to one source, they immediately realize that they had just found the most important literary remains of early Christianity outside of the New Testament. When they realized what they had, they were like, oh, this is the most important thing outside of the New Testament. This is, this is early Christianity. This tells us what early Christianity was. That's pretty significant, right? All right, now, there is no, there is, 
He says, uh, there is, however, a consensus for a mid to late first century dating. Some have it as early as 50 50 AD or CE if you go with the way they do it in university. But 50 AD, 50 to 70. Some argue for a later date, third to fourth century, but most place it very, 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 very early. And if you're 50 Do you realize how early that would be? Apostolic time, yes. I mean, you're like early, early. I mean, that would be crazy if that's true. Uh, Some scholars immediately recognize the antiquity of the account, dating it to the beginning of the second century. So there is some back and forth. But here's the thing. Almost everyone realized that this is a, like, absolutely important book that almost achieved canonical status in some early Christian circles, meaning some wanted it in the canon. They wanted it in scripture. If someone had got their way, you would open your Bible today and guess what you would find? The book of, of Didache. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously that's how, that's how they knew what it was, right? Yeah. That people knew what it was because even Athanasius and others were like, this, this is it. And they, some argued for it to be in the canon. But then it kind of just disappeared. And then they're like, oh, wait, here, look what we've just found, right? Um, okay, yeah. So there, there, is, there is a little bit of history. But now let's go to the Didache itself. I'm going to go to a, to a PDF file. All right. I'm not going to go through everything here about it. Uh, basically, the Didache begins with what's called the two ways. Very much Sermon on the Mount. They talk a little bit about the, uh, the commandments. Uh, they have the way of death. They have a conclusion. Then they come to the section known as the instruction for the catechumens. Now, you know what a catechumen is, right? What's a catechumen? Sarah better get this right. Someone who's being catechized. Catechized means catechesis or catechism, right? They're being instructed. Remember, a catechism was basically a a way of instructing through question and answer. A catechumen is someone who's learning through this catechesis process. They're being instructed, right? We don't like to use those words in the Protestant world. What kind of words would we use? Disciple or discipleship, right? Learning. Now, immediately, that's, that's important, right? Because if you're instructing someone, what are we, what's a basic logical conclusion that we would know about the person being instructed? They're of an age to be instructed. So immediately, this is not going to be an, an eight-day-old infant, right? Okay, that, that's important to realize, right? So clearly, there's people who've reached a certain age. Now, Here we go. Are you ready? This is how it begins. This section. Now concerning eating, observing the traditions as best as you can, but do not eat meat sacrificed to idols, for it is the worship of dead gods. So in this section for the catechumens, what do they not want them to do? Eat meat offered unto idols. Now, which is very interesting that this is here, because we had this, this, this discussion shows up where? 1 Corinthians, and Paul says it's okay to do so. 
but don't do it if it causes someone to stumble. To stumble. The, the Didache comes along and says, hey, don't do it. So obviously there's still an issue. But uh, everyone grab a, uh, a Bible dictionary real quick. Tell me when 1 Corinthians was written. You can use Study Bible. You can use online. Call a friend. Ask Siri. Alexa. I don't care. When was 1 Corinthians written? Okay, 56. Okay, 56. All right. We got two sources saying 56. Anybody got anything different? We'll go with 56. All right. If so, if this was written in 50, even if it was written close after, the, the letter to Corinthians was first sent where? To Corinth. It may have been a while before it spread, right? So you can see why there could be some possible conflict, yes? Agreed? Okay. All right. Just, I, just, I think that's kind of interesting when we see those kinds of things. Did you have a different date? Did they, no, the Goodlands. Did they have a different date? Or did they just have a marital dispute? Okay. Do we need divorce counseling? What, what's going on? Are we good to go over there? Are we good? Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, maybe that's what they're doing. All right. All right. Concerning baptism, now here comes the part on baptism. You ready? Concerning baptism, baptize in this way. Having instructed him in all of these teachings. Stop right here. All right, what's the first thing that's required before baptism? Instructing and all of the things in the Didache that came before it. So instruction is required for... Immediately, what does that seem to negate? Infant baptism seems to be negated. Because what, before you can be baptized, you have to be instructed. Hmm, that's, that's interesting. Oh, wait, let's, let's continue. Having instructed him in all of these things, baptize the catechumen in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Right? That seems to negate baptizing in Jesus' name. So, from the the Didache, instruction precedes baptism. You baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Got those two things down. In running water. Running water. What do you think that would seem to imply? A stream or a river. Huh, that's interesting. Why would you, if you're, if you're going to sprinkle them, why would you need to go find a place where there's running water? Right? If you're going to sprinkle them, do, they, do you have to go down to the river? You could just bring a bucket. Or a cup. Already interesting, right? Okay, so we, uh, uh, we, so they have to be instructed first, baptized in the name of the Father, in running water. But if you do not have running water, then baptize in other water. If you can't, if you can't find running water, baptize in, some, some in, uh, baptize in other water. Please note, baptize in other water. 
Not baptize with, but in. What's again seeming to at least imply that at least you're doing what? Well, I'm not, I don't want to go that far. You're at least getting in it. Correct? Agreed? Baptized in seeming to, I, I think that seems to indicate, or am I, am I the only one reading it that way? Baptized in other water. Baptized with other water is a completely different thing, right? In means we're getting into it. I, at least that's how I understand it. If you cannot in cold water, use warm. If you can't find cold water, use warm. I don't know why it mattered, but okay. I guess they wanted you to make sure you knew you were being baptized, all right? But if you have neither, now if you can't find any of this, if you can't find any of this, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, what was the way you should do it? Getting in water. But if you can't, now why would they possibly offer us a, a alternative? Because depending on where they were, water may have been a hard thing to find. But even if you're pouring, they don't say sprinkle. Even if you're pouring... I'm not saying it equals immersion, but you're still trying to do what? Making the person, because you're pouring not just once, not just twice, three times. Depending on how much you're pouring, you're still possibly getting the person is, you know, I'm not going to say their whole body fully wet, but you're getting at least their head fully wet, right? But once again, in our day and age, there would be no excuse because we have access to water. So, so what's the implication here? Instruction before, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptized in water, and then you can make an exception if you don't have enough. Are you ready for the next part? Everybody ready? Okay. Um, I've got to make sure I don't miss it. Let both... Everybody listen carefully. Let both the baptizer and the catechumen fast and also any others who are able and be sure that the catechumen fast a day or two before. So what else is required before baptism? Fasting. A day or two before. Does that completely just annihilate infant baptism? Are you going to take an eight-day-old and say you can't eat for two days? No. I mean, I, I think that would be ridiculous, right? Clearly, what's the implication? Well, the fact that they are instructed prior to, obviously someone who can understand and believe, and the fact that fasting is required, okay, same thing, and then look what they say here. Do not let your fast fall on the same day as the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, Keep your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And that's what they have to say about baptism. Do what? Who knows? Probably because it, it, it's probably one of those typical things that they found themselves in a region maybe where either people have a false religion or a different religion 
practice something and they didn't want to be associated with it. So they separated the fast on a different day, probably. Okay? Now, any, what is everyone's conclusion? And, and again, we could, we could go through everything and break it down, but just for this sake. So from the Didache, possibly 50 to 100 AD, let's go for the 50-year span, what would you conclude by reading that about baptism? Well, let's just be, let's be as, let's not try to add any interpretation. Let's just go with the facts. That whoever is being baptized is instructed first. Secondly, they're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Clearly the implication, they're baptized into water. Okay? And the only exception is if you can't find a running water, you can't find the water, then you can pour on the head three times, and prior to the baptism, what must occur? Fasting for a day or two days. Now, guess what? You would think that they would immediately say, make sure you baptize your babies. Make sure, because remember, what is the early church going to come up with not long after this? By the time you get to around 300, two doctrines are going to collide. What, one major doctrine is getting ready to become majorly established. Guess what doctrine that is? Total depravity. We're born sinners. Remember, you're going to have the Augustine-Pelagian debate? Well, now what? If all of us are conceived and born in sin, oh boy. You have high infant mortality at this point, right? What are we going to do for the babies? What are we going to do for them? Can you have them fast? Can you instruct them? Well, we got to do something, right? Because they're born a sinner. And if they're born a sinner, can they believe? So I got to get a baby saved without faith. Well, wait a minute. I thought we're saved by faith. I got to get this baby saved because the baby is a Sinner. So what's the only solution? Wash the sins away through baptism. You can see why this would have been established. Clearly it wasn't established in the Didache. Even in Acts. Just quickly, Acts chapter 2, really quick. I think it's verse 39. I think it's 39. Yeah, before that, that's 37, I believe. Or maybe 36. I think 39. I'm going from memory. No, no, no. That's in Corinthians. Or there's later in Acts. It's in Acts 2. Okay, that's 37, right? 39, 39. Okay, uh, the next verse. Okay, verse 40, I think verse 40. All right. 41. Okay, maybe 41. Okay, I know it's in here. Those that gladly received his words were baptized. 3,000. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm going to call the whole practice of infant baptism into question right here. 
Who was baptized? Those received the word. Why wouldn't they all be bringing their babies? Why would they not be bringing their babies? Either they rejected total depravity, which would be a massive problem, right? Because the Bible teaches total depravity. Or, what would be another reason? What would be another reason they didn't bring their babies? They didn't believe in infant baptism and nobody was teaching infant baptism and nobody understood infant baptism. That would possibly be a better explanation, right? The concept is, all those who were baptized on that day did what? Believed, right? What is the uh, understanding from the Didache? Who's baptized? Those who have been instructed. How were they just instructed there? Peter's sermon on, on the day of Pentecost, right? They believed they were baptized. And the Didache, those who have been instructed were baptized. What is the, what seemingly from not only the New Testament, but from the Didache is basically the implication that someone's going to believe, they're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're going to be baptized into water, and they're going to fast preceding their baptism. Or you could say this, what precedes baptism according to the Didache? Instruction and fasting. The baptism will be in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit unless no water can be found and you just pour some on them three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's there. Now, I know in Acts before that says the promise is for the children. Everybody's like, well, see, you baptize the infant. It doesn't say that. Just says the promises for them. Is the pro- for every child is the promise for them. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. Is that promise for every child? If you repent and believe, you'll be saved. But the promise is for everyone who repents and believes, they will be saved. Is that not a promise for everyone? If you repent and believe, that's a promise that if you repent and believe, you'll be saved. That's a promise for everyone, right? Have I lost something? Have we gone? That's a promise for everyone, yes? I can say to anyone, if you repent and believe, you'll be saved. Now, I know the verse mentions baptism, which creates a whole problem, and we'll have to deal with that. But I just want you to see that that problem, that promise is for a child as for an adult, if you repent and believe. Now, yes, I obviously believe that they won't repent until God grants repentance, and they can't believe until God gives uh, belief, but the promise goes to everyone, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, a, that's, that's an invitation. That's a promise to everyone, but the only ones who will believe are the ones God gives faith to. Okay, well, you're scaring me there for a second. Like, we went, we went some weird dark place. But as far as the Didache, what can we dogmatically say this morning when you leave here? What is clearly not mentioned in the Didache? Infants. There you go. That, that, that's just, that's, so immediately when you say the early church was unanimous, the Didache is not unanimous. Not only is it not mentioned the infants, it clearly is implying 
that they're, the people being baptized are of an age to be instructed. All right, I'll have to stop there, right? Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Very important, very important subject. Pray that we'll give this serious thought, mainly so that we can be protected by those who would try to make claims about the early church that appear not to be true. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,